I'm Sarah. And I'm Joanna. And we are your therapists next door. Join us as we demystify therapy and destigmatize mental health. Every episode, we interview a healthcare professional. It's sometimes serious, sometimes sad, most times ridiculous. This week, we welcome Raquel Mangual, who works as a social worker. Welcome everyone to Therapists Next Door, the podcast that shows you the human side of your friendly neighborhood healthcare worker. We do this by interviewing a healthcare professional each episode, asking questions that you want the answers to and answering questions that you didn't know you had. I'm Joanna, a board certified music therapist and a licensed professional counselor in the state of Pennsylvania. I'm a white cisgendered female and my pronouns are she, hers. And I used to pole vault in high school. Take it aback by that fact. I love it. Oh, I didn't know you knew that. No, I didn't know that. (laughs) And I'm Sarah, an LPC from Pennsylvania, transplant from South Jersey. I am a white lady and my pronouns are she, her. And I only recently understood the phrase, make like a tree and leaf. How did you only recently realize what that meant? So I have this I I have no idea how to explain it. And maybe we can find like some like thought blocking thing for it. But if I hear one thing and I don't get surrounding context or details, I have like no idea like why something is happening. Like I think I rewatched Back to the Future 3 and I heard Biff make that joke about make like a tree and get out of here. It doesn't make any sense. And then I was like, holy shit, I get it. (laughs) It's my 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 past is littered with instances in which I had realizations about very common phrases that we use uh, in our vernacular daily. I didn't know that you didn't know that I pole vaulted. I feel like I tell everybody that's like my fun fact and everything. That is incredible. What a what a scary part of track and field. I did. I wasn't very good. Okay. Um. I only. I think the highest I jumped was seven and a half feet, which isn't very high. Uh. In pole vault standards, I also. We had like a little troop in my high school and I had to get my own special pole because I weighed more than everybody else on the team and they're based on your weight. So that really set me up for a great uh, relationship with my body early on. Very solid. I, I would like to point out that you're saying you're not very good at flying through the air with the use <laughs> of, because I never, I never could like in my mind when watching the pole vaulters conceptualize how it was done. Like I tried high jump a couple times and I was like, my, these people are flying. Y'all are flying. <laughs> I did hurt myself a lot while I was pole vaulting. Yeah. Um, I one time just like stood up and hit my face on the pole that goes across. Mm-hmm. Um, I had braces on. So I just had a bloody mouth and my mom was there and I thought it was funny because it is funny, you know, <laughs> If you were to have seen it, I wish I could have seen it. It would have been funny. Um, It sounds like a murder scene, but fine. (laughs) She didn't think it was very funny. Yeah. I used up all the Band-Aids in the, like, coach's box after a while because, you know. Did you ever have to go to the tent for, like, to see the trainer to get anything wrapped? Oh, yeah. I broke my ankle pole vaulting. Jesus Christ. That was always my favorite part of like the big weekend track meets is that you could just like 
go off to the tent, see the other injured folks. Hey, saw y'all last week. How you healing? <laughs> As if um, we were that socially inept or talented in high school. <laughs> Who knows? Yeah, we is were a, uh, certainly a fun fact, Joanne. I'm happy to have learned. Yeah. I did see, so I don't know about our audience or you, Joanna, but I frequently avoid news regarding student loans because years ago I was just like, I don't want to hear updates. I don't want to hear them because I don't want to get my hopes up. I don't want to keep thinking about it. I know that it is a trigger for me. And I mean that in the kind, like the most usable sense of the word. So this morning I went on Reddit just to see what top news was. And I saw about Biden potentially signing something to forgive all student loans. And then I read for 10 minutes and I had to do a, it's, it's probably not going to happen. And then I had to do like a very quick meditation before we started because, because I cannot hear or read about that stuff without becoming like immensely stressed out. Yeah. It's nonsense. I just, when I did grad school, I was like, just put on my tab. I don't even want to know. I know that's like one weirdly, oddly comforting thing about it is that you can just kind of throw money at it once a month. And if you convince yourself, if you train yourself to not think about it, you're not going to think about it as much. Yeah. Whew. Good stuff. Okay. Would you like to touch on housekeeping, Joanna? Since this is one of our first and earliest episodes, there's not too much housekeeping. I will say that hopefully our Patreon will be up by the beginning of July. I say this because I'm going on a month-long road trip beginning in July. Uh, so I hope to have that all set for Sarah while I'm gallivanting around the country. Mm -hmm. If you want to wave to me out your window as I pass by, you can do that. Um, the Patreon, I'm really excited about it. You'll have the opportunity to get ad-free episodes, vote on topics that we talk about, and even suggest questions that we ask on the show. Super exciting. Absolutely. And by that time, for folks listening... By that time, you can email us at therapists next door. That's therapist plural next door at gmail.com. And by that time, you'll also be able to visit our website, which is tndpodcast.com. That's tndpodcast.com. Wonderful. And Joanne, I want to mention as you were talking about people waving out their windows at you, I had like this cartoon image of you and your partner driving in a vehicle with like a animated map just like like through the country like in a dotted line following you <laughs> that's, that's basically it huh? stay tuned for our history lesson after a quick break transition into our history lesson, which we use as a tool to warm the listeners up before our interview with our guests. What we are going to be listening to is a list of facts and narrative written to describe the field of the person that we are interviewing. Okay, our sources today. The first source is a article written by David A. Irvin, Brian Hennon, Yav Merrick, and Mohammed Murad titled Healthcare for Persons with Intellectual and Developmental Disability in the Community. We have a series on disability from the National Park Service. 
And we have an article by Scott Spreet titled Brief History and Future of Intellectual Disabilities in America, as well as a blurb from the National Council on Disability. Trigger warning, there is some brief talk about abuse of the disabled, obviously, including forced sterilizations, institutionalizations. Um, we do not stay heavily on these facts, obviously, because we do not want to trigger the listener or ourselves. But we also do feel it's absolutely necessary to mention these briefly because they absolutely existed and they happened to these people and it's important to talk about it. All right, first off, we are going to start with a definition of intellectual and developmental disability. It is characterized by significant limitations both in intellectual functioning and in adaptive behavior as expressed in conceptual, social, and practical adaptive skills. This disability originates before age 18. And on to our earliest history. Some of the first references to intellectual disability date back to the ancient Egyptians, where this concept is mentioned in the Papyrus of Thebes over 3,500 years ago. The ancient Romans and Greeks believed that children were born with intellectual disabilities because the gods were angry. Many children died as a result of this, except, of course, for children from higher class families who were given rights and received care from guardians. Attitudes changed towards folks with IDD in the Middle Ages, as they were often employed in entertainment positions, and by entertainment positions, I mean court jesters and other humiliating positions uh, like that. Before the 1700s, folks with mild IDDs were able to work and were regarded as not so different from their peers. Those with more severe IDD were sometimes revered as they were rumored to be recipients of divine intervention. They could be taken care of by families or in monasteries, others were not so lucky. Dorothea Dix, who was a healthcare advocate and nurse, spoke, uh, said this following quote at the Memorial of the Legislator in Massachusetts in 1843. Obviously the vernacular is dated, but you will get the gist of what she's trying to say in this quote. I come to present the strong claims of suffering humanity. I come to place before the legislature of Massachusetts, the condition of the miserable, the desolate, the outcast. I come as an advocate of helpless, forgotten, insane, and idiotic men and women of being sunk to a condition from which the worst, un most unconcerned would start with real horror, of being wretched in our prisons and more wretched in our almshouses. All right, so in colonial America, historically a wonderful time for, for most people, including, including themselves, caring for people with disability was often a town's responsibility. Towns provided poor farms and almshouses, which is a home built originally by a charitable person or organization for poor people to live in. Individuals with disabilities, criminals, and paupers, or very poor people, were often lumped under one roof. These facilities were often overcrowded, dirty, and unregulated due to financial constraints or the inability to provide for their relatives properly. Families often struggled to care privately for their relatives deemed, quote, insane or with physical disabilities. When families could not cope with care, these individuals became wards of the state. By the 1800s, inmate numbers swelled. Doctors blamed overcrowding on the rapid development of cities, machinery, and industry. Many physicians of that time believed that industrialization created pressure and stress on individuals. In response, state government took responsibility for these populations and often removed them from, removed them to the countryside. Groups were divided and placed in institutions that were thought to be specific to their needs. However, individuals with disabilities, whether physical or cognitive, were commonly sent to a quote, lunatic and quote, insane asylum. Interesting fact, I have done a lot of family research and a significant like 
portion of my family lived in an almshouse for a while. Um, and it's hard to find any information. So I don't know what was going on there or what happened. So That's pretty incredible. And I, I know you were doing a lot of family research. Was that right? Like f- years following grad school, right? Was yeah. That when you- That's pretty neat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So beginning in the late 1700s, European hospitals introduced what they called moral treatment. Doctors, particularly in France and England, discouraged physical restraints, such as shackles or straitjackets. They focused instead on emotional well-being, believing this approach would cure patients more effectively. This intention to treat patients humanely inspired Dr. Thomas Story Kirkbride. Kirkbride directed the Institute of the Pennsylvania Hospital in Philadelphia starting in the 1840s. Using moral treatment ideas, Kirkbride created what he thought was the ideal architectural model for a humane hospital. The Kirkbride building model featured several different wings for patients, nurses, and doctors. Gardens and farmland surrounded the buildings. These hospitals were often situated in rural settings because doctors believed urban areas worsened mental health. Kirkbride's model encouraged fields, farms, and workshops to support patient health. Patients worked the lands, and the gardens also provided patients with food and produce. Several hospitals adopted this model in the 1800s. The Friends Asylum for the Insane in Philadelphia, founded in 1813, is one such example. Doctors there used a combination of Quaker views and medical science of the era. This was the first private, nonprofit, exclusively mental hospital in the U.S., The Bethpage Mission in Nebraska was another religiously inspired hospital. The mission, opened in 1914, followed the work of Swedish and Augustana Evangelical Lutheran Church. The Friends Hospital, Bethpage Mission, and other religious hospitals are still active today. Many hospitals stopped practicing this version of moral treatment in the 1900s for a number of reasons. State legislators decided that the cost of these programs was more than they were willing to spend. Hospitals also shut down their farms and workshops. Hospital superintendents instead focused on research and new medical treatment. Electroshock therapy and hydrotherapy were among two new methods. With electroshock therapy, small electric shocks were passed through the brains of patients. Hydrotherapy or water exercises were developed to also help patients. Doctors were also influenced by popular ideas of eugenics in the late 1800s and early 1900s. Eugenics is the misguided belief that controlling genetics could improve the human race. Some doctors practiced forced sterilization on persons they deemed unfit, removing their ability to have children. Other physicians performed lobotomies to cut connections between parts of the brain, believing lobotomies could significantly reduce, quote, mania or, quote, highly disturbing behavior. Thousands of lobotomies were performed in the 1940s and 50s, though this practice faded in popularity by mid-century. Doctors and healthcare advocates increasingly questioned the effectiveness of this surgery, instead opting for medications and other methods of care to treat patients. Very, very tightly packed paragraph talking about eugenics and lobotomies. <laughs> is, I know. <laughs> um, another fun fact, a friend's hospital who we, a hospital that we have some peers who have worked at, does still hold its does still hold its Quaker values, I believe, but it is also a private facility owned by UHS Universal Health Services, which also owns a whole bunch of other hospitals in the Eastern PA area, including, um, I believe, Horsham Clinic, not Belmont, and Foundations Behavioral Health. Okay. 
All right. Now we are going to start on a little bit of American exceptionalism, mostly because that the history in our century and a couple centuries before is what we're really focusing on. All right. During the 19th and later 20th century, we saw swings towards the positive in the treatment of healthcare of people with IDDs. So what this means is that every 50 years, people's minds changed about folks with IDDs. For 50 years in one century, they'd be, you know, on board for treating it. For 50 years in another century, they'd be blaming them for crime. So we had we saw a big swing in the la- in the previous two centuries, uh, before the year 2000. Okay, during the beginning of the 19th century, there was hope of integrating folks with IDDs into the workforce, but this ceased briefly as urbanization industri- and industrialization took over, leading folks who were gaining employment based off of ability and physical strength alone to struggle to find employment as higher intellect was more in demand, aka intellectual ability versus pure physical ability. Like most oppressed groups, some even blamed these individuals for poverty and crime, which makes about as much sense as blaming poor people, black people, and trans folks for whatever they are blamed for now, which is a lot. Research began to show that there were no signs that IDD was hereditary, but that other things could lead to IDD, including infection, trauma, and endocrine disorders. Research also showed that families without an intellectual disability disorder in their history were not more or less likely to have children born with an IDD. Also, folks from lower, also research showed that folks from lower social classes were not more likely to produce children with an IDD, which is that research needed to be done, I suppose. All right. Many, <laughs> many medical practitioners of the 1950s and 1960s viewed the health of people with IDD through the disease orientation. In 1954, then president of the American Association on Mental Deficiency, today known as the American Association on Intellectual and Developmental Disabilities, Dr. Arthur Hopwood publicly opened that, quote, medicine, not education, will find the answers, unquote, to care and treatment challenges experienced by people with IDD. The person with IDD is, in such a, quote, medical model, sick, which has the basis of institutionalization for decades. Institutions, sometimes called schools, which were founded in the late 19th and early 20th centuries on a commitment to educating people with IDD evolved into centers of custodial care. By the middle of the 20th century, the educational basis on which most institutions were conceived had given way to a custodial administrative model that was negatively referred to as a medical model. So essentially, they went from teaching people with IDD skills and self-care and management of ADLs What are ADLs? Activities of daily living for our listeners. Ironically, people with IDD lived far shorter lifespans and experienced far greater health disparities and inequalities under the medical model than they do today in a community-based model. Which is a very kind way of saying that these people were shoved into poorly maintained facilities with poorly trained, oftentimes abusive staff for decades of their lives, often until their deaths. Around that time, many Americans began to warm again to the idea of the existence of folks with IDDs without blaming them for their limitations. Education programs that served the population began popping up. In 1962, U.S. President John F. Kennedy, whose sister Rosemary was famously believed to have an IDD, created the National Institute of Child Health and Human Development within the National Institutes of Health. Kennedy's efforts also included efforts to deinstitutionalize people with IDD and move them to community and encourage the nation's medical establishments to address the causes and treatments of IDD. 
Deinstitutionalization, which I'm going to say correctly every time, famously had the intention of replacing long-stay psychiatric hospitals with less isolated community mental health services for those diagnosed with a mental disorder or developmental disability. The National Council on Disabilities says this about deinstitutionalization. The, quote, unfinished business of closing state-run facilities and other public and private institutional settings that have traditionally served people with intellectual disabilities and developmental disabilities, ID slash DD, is not about, quote, dumping people into the community, nor is it about closing large institutions and moving people to smaller institutions or institution-like settings. Closing institutions is about developing strong and inclusive community supports and allowing people to have control over how they live their lives. Now, I will begrudgingly read the pros and cons of deinstitutionalization. It successfully gave more rights to those with mental health disorders. Many of those in mental hospitals lived in the backwater for decades. They received varying levels of care. It also changed the culture of treatment from send them away to integrate them into society where possible. Deinstitutionalization especially benefited those with Down syndrome and other high-functioning mental disorders. Cons. Many of those released from institutions were severely mentally ill. They were not good candidates for community centers due to the nature of their illnesses. Long-term inpatient care provides better treatment for many of those with severe mental illness. There wasn't enough federal funding for the mental health centers. That meant there weren't enough centers to serve those with mental health needs. It also made it difficult to create any comprehensive programs. Mental health professionals underestimated how difficult it was to coordinate community resources scattered throughout a city for those with disorders. The courts made it almost impossible to commit anybody, anyone against their will. That's true regardless of whether it was for the person's own safety and welfare or for that of others. It resulted in prisons being flooded with the mental ill as well as the streets and the population of chronically homeless individuals skyrocketed. Studies done over the past 20 years show that individuals with IDD continue to experience worse health care and access than those without IDD. In a 2014 article titled Healthcare for Persons with Intellectual and Developmental Disability in the Community, the following conclusion is given. Today, we celebrate longer lifespans of people with IDD, increased attention to the benefits of healthcare that is responsive to their needs, and the development of important healthcare delivery systems that are customized to their needs. We also know that a growing body of research on health status offers incentive to continue developing healthcare structures for people with IDD by training healthcare providers about the needs of people with IDD and establishing systems of care that integrate acute healthcare with long-term services and support. By developing IDD medicine as a specialty and by building health promotion and wellness resources to provide people with IDD a set of preventative health supports. Join us after the break, where we talk to Raquel Mangual about working with folks with intellectual developmental disabilities. And now we are going to welcome our guest. She is a BSW, Bachelor's in Social Work, and recent graduate of Philadelphia's Temple University School of Social Work with a focus on the disability community, specifically adults with intellectual and developmental dis disabilities. She has done extensive research on the experience of Latinx disabled folks, examining the many intersectionalities. 
She has personal and professional experience working with this population as she cared for her older brother who lives with IDD and supported him after their parents died when she was 20. She spent a short period of time working in behavioral health, but realized that that wasn't where her spirit was. She is in long-term recovery from drugs and alcohol, which has had a huge impact on her educational journey. And in her spare time, she is an artist and a very good one, if I may add. One of my oldest and closest friends, Raquel M. Mangual. Hello, everybody. Hey. Hello. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. This is so exciting. I've never been on a podcast before. <laughs> well, we have also never done a podcast before, so we are all yeah. a big old round of firsts. Raquel, can you tell us a little bit about the work that you do? Yeah, of course. Um, so yeah, I recently graduated from Temple. So during my last year, uh, I was doing my practicum at Liberty Resources, Inc. And because it's a vulnerable population, we had to get very creative with uh, my tasks and everything, which is what led to me starting to do a lot of research because I, I realized two things at Temple. There isn't a lot of focus on the disability community and which is interesting because they have the Center for Disability for Disabilities at the university. So I find it kind of ironic. Um, but also there isn't a whole lot of focus um, on adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities. Oftentimes when you seek out information about it, you get a ton of hits about children. But when you look for adults, it's a little more difficult. And the more intersectionalities you put on it, like the stream of focus gets more and more narrow. Like when you start adding things like, um, you know, like people of the BIPOC community, Black, Indigenous, people of color, and like what their experience is like. So I became very intrigued about it after my personal experience with my brother. And I started doing a lot of research about what their experience is like and how, how being a member of the Latinx community contributes to the experience of being a disabled person within that community. Uh, like when you talk about things about familialism, like we keep everything within the family in regards to care, which often limits the families involved because they're, they're not utilizing resources that may, uh, you know, relieve some of the the tension that can be created from uh, being responsible and, you know, passing off responsibilities to other family members. So I did a lot of that and uh, just kind of like learning the ropes of like attending ISP meetings, uh, which if you're not familiar, it's individual support plans for adults with IDD, uh, help them meet their goals. Uh, I, I was able to get one client once the pandemic started to get a little bit um, safer. And I support him in uh, socialization skills, uh, financial management, and navigating the city. It's such a high amount of responsibility, but like the skills that you attain to be able to either redirect or manage, manage behavior and manage emotions in like very potentially overwhelming and triggering situations. It's so, it's so nuanced that it's so important. And I'm really glad that you brought up intersectionality. I love that we I love that we are going to be bringing that up. It's it's so important to think about, and it's so it's something that a lot of people will just not simply not understand if they have not had to be a member of 
at least one or several oppressed groups. Intersectionality is very important to know about. How, has, how did the pandemic and how does it continue to affect your day-to-day -day as far as work goes? Yeah, so it kind of like rocked my uh, work world because I, I was working at a bakery while I was in my last year of school and ended up having to switch to working third shift, so working overnight and doing an internship and going to class. It was a really fun time, but it really narrowed my ability to interact with the community at my practicum, which was kind of unfortunate because I do feel like I missed a big piece. But the flip side is because I got to be really involved in more of the macro aspects, like attending like um, meetings with the city, with like DBHIDS, the Department of Behavioral Health and Intellectual Disability Services, and like the PA uh, statewide Office of Developmental Programming, ODP. And um, I got to hear like all the behind the scenes things about how how much the pandemic was impacting the community of the IDD community because uh, day programs were shut down. You know, the CLA homes, community living, assisted living homes um, were, you know, kind of uh, really like limited, you know, they couldn't receive visitors, they couldn't go out into the community as much anymore. So if you're not familiar, like structure is really important for individuals who have IDD, who are living with IDD, and you take away that structure and you try to implement new things and it's kind of like trial and error. You don't know if it's gonna work or not. Yeah, so I, I saw how it really changed things and you know, I'm in the process of seeking out um, meaningful employment right now. And uh, it's really interesting as seeing how um, day programs are starting to reopen and how they a lot of them had to get rid of a lot of staff. So a lot of them are like rehiring right now because you couldn't keep people on that weren't doing anything. What does a day program consist of? So there's two types of there's like, so there's vocational programs, which help train, help support and train adults with IDD how to navigate the workforce and help them to get like um, entry level jobs, oftentimes at like grocery stores or like Target, things like that. Um, and then there's the day program portion where it's like they engage in, the, the folks in, uh, involved will engage in different activities that can support whatever their uh, ISP goals are in reaching those goals. So it could be something like um, money management, you know, socialization skills. Uh, it could even be things like, you know, home, home skills, like how to cook like basic things, um, you know, kind of operate a microwave and a stove, depending upon like functionality levels, how to wash your clothes. You know, it's really just meeting the person wherever they're at and trying to support them to go wherever they would like to see themselves go. That is so cool. I see both Sarah and I are nodding our heads like, yeah. How do you feel like your personality is represented in the social work that you do? I feel like I am a very, <laughs> I don't know how to put this. Um, 
like passionate person like if I believe in something as far as like social quality and social justice go like I'm gonna go all in and I think that works to my benefit because it makes me work harder to to make sure that the folks that I'm supporting get not just what they need but like more than that right because like I think oftentimes in like the behavioral health and human services world like it's there's a there's like an undertone message of like getting people what they need and it's like what about getting people more than that because life's not just about what you need like as a person without it as an able-bodied person like do you just get what you need no you get more things than that so why shouldn't someone with a disability have the same thing that is such a good observation for so many social inequality issues I mean regarding you know, like welfare and family assistance as well. Like why should people only receive something that is just not going to keep them starving and, you know, just going to keep them just warm through the winter. I mean, obviously that's, that's like a very broad strokes idea, but you're absolutely right. And that is not, as far as funding goes, that's not typically what the federal level is thinking about quality of life. When in reality that would, if we're talking return on investment, which is the worst way to talk about people, they'd use the healthcare system less. They would be, they would be utilizing the penal system less. I mean, everything, everything regarding these folks that are, are just put into bad situations would be better. Yeah. It makes me think about um, when I was in uh, school, it was like my last two years, I had one of the same professors. She's a really wonderful uh, person. Shout out Professor Davis. Um, <laughs> She would always say like with social work, we do not ever ask the question of what is wrong with you. It is what happened? What set of circumstances led to you making the decision that you made that put you in this situation? Because when we ask what's wrong with you, that puts an undertone of like, you did something to deserve this. This is your fault. But when you ask what happened to you, it leaves room for grace. It leaves room for compassion. That is perfect. I feel like you should say her name one more time. <laughs> Shout out Professor Davis. Oh, it's incredible. That, that's, the, that's the idea behind feminist therapy as well, because it's so focused on intersectionality, because most, most of the time, if somebody from an oppressed group has a behavior that is you know, counterintuitive to the life of everybody else, it's because something was done to them that what's wrong with you victim blaming mentality only furthers people's issues that's a good teacher <laughs> okay what do you think is difficult about social work there's a lot of things that are really difficult like you have to people always say like you have to like you know fill your cup halfway or like you know like you can't pour from an empty cup and like I forget where I heard this, but it made a lot more sense to me in its relation to social work. You're supposed to have a full cup and whatever spills out of there is what you give to other people. Like you're never actually supposed to be empty out of your own cup. And I think that's where there can be difficulty for me personally, because I 
tend to like it sounds so cringy like talking about yourself in a positive light but like I tend to do a lot for other people until I it's like the giving tree like I gave until I have nothing left and um, that's not conducive for anybody and it's not conducive for the work that I do Um, and I think the thing that I find the most challenging is separating my personal experience for my professional experience, because my personal experience is what drove me to want to become a social worker, right? But I'm a human being, so I get triggered by things sometimes, and especially when it comes to the population uh, that I, I've chosen to want to support and work with, there's still a lot of unresolved trauma with this, like, regarding, you know, the situation with my brother and caring for him after our parents passed away and having to make the decision to uh, place him in a CLA uh, home. And, you know, and that ties into a lot of um, cultural things. Like that was a very frowned upon decision that we had to make. That was not okay in the eyes of people in my family. The same people who didn't want to help us, but just wanted to judge us. Um, And that's okay. It's, you know, like I, I've done a lot of work on that, but I still have a lot more to do because I, he did end up in the first place he was living. Uh, he was being neglected. And thankfully, I was able to uh, recognize what was happening within a, you know, pretty decent amount of time before anything catastrophic happened, at least that I know of, and uh, did a lot of like, crazy intense running around the city to find him a new place to live and uh it was very stressful it was very emotional but we figured it out and uh he's really happy now where he's at but I do like I had to take um adult uh adult reporting services training so essentially like the child welfare training but for adults ages 18 to 62, I believe it is. And um, <laughs> it was really graphic and they like didn't tell me that there were gonna be pictures in it. Oh my and it was so triggering. Um, I like cried, I called my sister and she's like, it's okay, like that's not him. That's not gonna happen to him. So it's just one of those things. <laughs> yeah, Raquel, I- that had happened a couple years ago. Like as, as both of you know, my oldest niece and nephew also have IDD coupled with, coupled with autism as well. And my, it was a couple years back and my nephew had gotten in a fight at school. And I just remember seeing red that day. Like I left work. I, you know, went to my sister's house and I really didn't do much. All I did was I was there when he got home and he ended up being fine, but it was a scary day and I was I the 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 rage that I was feeling was very not unexpected but it surprised me um just because I haven't had to feel that before because I'm not his guardian right obviously I am I'm the aunt coming in and out periodically so that so having to hold that like so much emotion and care and responsibility at once has to be so much (laughs) so much for you to carry and I that's I mean really no comment beyond that it's just it, it's just has to be so much for you to hold 
It definitely has been, and but it, it also helps me, like, we kind of, this kind of sounds maybe a little messed up, but, like, maybe our parents had to die so that we could all go on our own paths because we had this, like, trauma bond, and it was, like, if you just hold on, if you just don't let go, everything will be okay. Don't let go. Don't let go, and um, when everybody had to let go, it was just, like, what do we do now? Like it took like a lot of um a lot of work and therapy to learn how to deal with that, like for all of us, because like you said, like we uh we were ill-equipped to be honest. Like we didn't know what to do other than to keep each other alive. And um like like we talked about a few questions back, like our brother deserves more than to just be kept alive. He deserves to have a happy and fulfilling life whatever that looks like for him it's gonna look different than what mine looks like and that's okay yeah (laughs) sorry that was incredible that was so beautifully spoken and I, I I think that you're right it's so I mean sometimes we have these in your words these kind of messed up as we view them realizations but oftentimes some of the some of the most difficult horrifying challenging things we have to go through we come out the other side being able to grow because we're not we're not being bound by trauma together and that's no one should have to learn that lesson but the fact that people do and are able to come out the other side is really incredible oh I hope all of our questions can kind of match the caliber of interviewing that we're having so far <laughs> sorry I was also gonna say it, oh it God, seems no like like knowing that your drive comes from like a, per, a personal place I could imagine that drive also trying to like unfill your cup to just kind of like overriding your your sense of self-care I can see that happening really easily it does I'm awful like that was my uh, supervision common theme was like you need to take care of yourself you have to do something outside of school and working and like going to meetings and being involved in all of that stuff um it's just it's I think it it's interesting to me like I think that there's a lot of things that go into that you know it's like the idea of women were supposed to be endlessly giving um you know and then there's the narrative of like being a brown woman like a strong brown woman which I fucking hate that narrative oh, I'm sorry um, <laughs> keep going say it again <laughs> you, you can swear it's okay <laughs> um just because it's like so limiting it's like dude I'm more than like I'm more than my uh adversities that I've experienced right and that can be really aggravating as a person of color like because, uh, you know, it, what it's rooted in is that people of color are able to withstand more pain than other people that are not people of color. And that's problematic in so many different ways. But um, when I look at it from a, like a larger context, like I can see how all of these like things add up and have always just kind of funneled into like me you know, being placed in like a caretaker role. So it's easy for me to just give and give and give to other people. And then I get burnout and then I get resentful. And then I'm like, I don't want to do this anymore. This isn't fair, blah, 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 blah. And it's like, but you're doing it to yourself. 
Raquel, there's so many points there. And I, I, I do want to add to that, like this narrative of the strong black woman or the strong brown woman, it also sets up a space where white women can be weak and be comforted by strong black and brown women. Even when white people are realizing, having like the realization of racial inequality, they still <laughs> tend to go into that position of, oh, I feel so guilty about this to, you know, like BIPOC friends and family, setting up a situation in which a black or brown person is comforting them for, for being sad about racial inequality, which is just like the most colonial mentality you can ever think of. And for those listening, we will be talking about colonialism a lot. Uh, colonial mentality is essentially an oppressed group identifying with views and feelings and thoughts that serve the colonizer. Um, so it's essentially like an entire group of people being gaslit into thinking that something is right or appropriate or fair. All right, Raquel, you had mentioned that, you know, your supervisor said you have to have a life beyond meetings and uh, sleep and work, sleep in quotations. Did you want to talk at all about your experience in meetings and recovery and what that taught you about their basis of existence? Yeah, so it's been, it's been a really interesting experience, right? Because like the first, so like in September, I'll celebrate six years of continuous sobriety. Uh, woo. <laughs> woo. Um, thank you, thank you. Um, and I think I want to say for like the first four years, it was just about survival. It was just about learning how to get sober and stay sober under any and all conditions. And it wasn't really necessarily until like round year four, and then obviously year five of the past year. That really like blew the lid off of, um, you know, the, the very many problematic things about fellowships. Like, to be honest, I was not considered when that book was written. You know, it was designed for cis, hetero, upper class, rich, white men. Uh, they did not consider uh, me in that description and you can see how a lot of that has uh, like transpired it's made it challenging because there's a lot of um, like hierarchical things that kind of go down sometimes of like oh I know this is what they meant when they wrote that and it's like I'm sorry, I didn't know you lived to be 120 and that you were alive when that book was written, but that's cool. Right. Um, <laughs> but um, the, as since the events of all of the uprisings of last year, there's been a huge uptick in um, BIPOC meetings. So meetings of all different fellowships for Black, Indigenous people of color um, and the choice to do that, right? Like we're not being segregated, we're choosing to hold space for one another because for you to sit there and say that my experience with race is an outside issue it's not you're telling me that part of who I am is an outside issue so that equation doesn't make any sense um Rico, could you clarify what an outside issue is in like the AA NA vernacular yeah for sure so like the idea of outside issues is like it doesn't directly correlate with drugs and alcohol. Um, so a lot of times people will, they'll manipulate that and try to gaslight people. Like um, they'll talk about how, 
you know, mental health issues are an outside issue. Whereas if you read the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, it specifically talks about in how it works, chapter five, that some people need outside help. Some people are emotionally incapable of grasping this program and that it's okay to do that. And it says it in multiple parts of that book that like, it's okay to get help from doctors, psychiatrists, whatever, but people will manipulate that into gaslighting people because they're uncomfortable. They don't know how to deal with that. They don't want to acknowledge their own shit. And I think also it really supports like a really um, like misogynist, like everyone's just got to be tough and like rugged kind of mentality. That's like so nonsensical. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for clarifying that. I don't, I don't, I don't think that, I don't think the people that are not in recovery have any idea that there is intersectionality involved in recovery. And I can imagine the folks in recovery are either get so frustrated with it that they choose to take their own path. Correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm not in recovery. They get so frustrated that they just take their own path or they continue to stay in it and be gaslit, which then causes further trauma down the line. Yeah. So that's kind of like how the, like, there were meetings for people of color before the uprisings that happened in 2020, but not to the magnitude that there is now. Like, like there's just, I have a spreadsheet um, of like this Google Doc there. It's been, it's like, you can only access it if you're part of the BIPOC community, but there's like over 50 meetings for like every fellowship you can think of. And I think that's like a beautiful thing, right? Because like there's people who are, reluctant to go to other meetings because they've had bad experiences and it either pushed them out and made them not want to go to 12-step programs like AA or NA or CA um, or it just they just didn't feel like they belonged and I think that's a really integral part of being in recovery is like that's what drives most of us to start drinking and using drugs we feel isolated we don't feel you feel like something's wrong with you intrinsically. So you turn to drugs and alcohol and it gives you a false sense of courage. It it lies to you and tells you that like everything's okay now. And um, I think that the whole outside issue concept, you know, because because AA doesn't take a stance on political issues, everything that's involved with things of that nature, like religious issues, things like that, so people will also weaponize that into saying that really, that race is an outside issue. So A doesn't take a stance on it. So you can't talk about it in a meeting. But you want to sit there and say that while you're talking about the pandemic in a meeting, because that's technically also an outside issue. So I'm a real jerk. I'll fight this with people. <laughs> it seems like somebody needs to. I mean, that that is like something that Joanna and I have had to overcome as well. This kind of oppressive idea that you shouldn't discuss therapy or excuse me, you shouldn't discuss polity and the politics in the therapy session, which is like an incredibly privileged take because because oftentimes like we've all seen, you know, during obviously past presidency that we can be we can experience ubiquitous little t trauma, a little t trauma being, you know, like pervasive, consistent trauma. Fight, fight, fight till the end. Fight till the end. (laughs) Absolutely. Let's uh, transition back a little bit. Thank you so much for talking through that, Raquel. That information is so important. And I have been reeling about it ever since you shared it with me over a year ago. So I appreciate that. We talked about what you don't love or what is hard about social work. So what do you love and what 
do you think comes with more ease? Um, I think, well, what I do love is like the, you know, there's like a moment where you're able to support someone in a situation and you just, you can see it in their eyes and it's like, it's like when you take a deep breath in and you're like, like they feel like they can breathe again. Like that just for a little bit, it's like, it might not last the whole day or the whole month or the whole year, but they got a moment of reprieve because they got supported in something where like they, they may not have been able to get that support. Cause right. Like this is the thing that people get messed up about social work. My job is not to fix your life. My job is to give you the tools to support you so that you can make the changes that you want to see in your life. And I, that's the one thing I love about social work is like, cause I have a real issue with momming people. Like I'll just do stuff for people and like work environments. It's like, you're not doing it fast enough. I'm like, it's okay. I'll do it for you. Just go over there. Don't touch it. Um, and that's not helpful. The, you know, it's not helpful. It doesn't allow people room to grow. And I think that's what I love about social work. It's so spacious. Um, it's so inclusive of variation. Um, we can work, you can work with any population under any circumstance in any setting that you want. So you can try one population and maybe it doesn't work out so well and you go to a different one and um, you're not limited or trapped by your, um, you know, your uh, qualification, I guess you could say. And um, I just really enjoy seeing people uh, being empowered, like, it's I think it's really special to me to see people realize that like you do have the power within yourself to make all the changes that you want to see in your life and it's not always going to be easy like if it was easy to change your life everybody would do it but it's not easy and that's like the true test of like faith like when everything is like it's easy to have faith when everything is going good and you have loving relationships and a job and a place to live and anything you could ever ask for. But the true test of faith is when all that goes to shit, do you still believe that everything's going to be okay, that you're going to make it out okay? And I think that social work has given me the opportunity to not only believe that for myself, but um, to help other people see that within their own experience. And it's so beautiful. I know. I what? sorry, sorry, Joanna. I jo- Raquel, for this being your first podcast and us being the first interview, you sound professional. <laughs> you sound I know you, you. You sound so good. Oh. <laughs> I'm like blown away. I, I can't. Yeah, we're we're just here. Like yes, not like yeah. Keep talking, ma'am. Yes. <laughs> Here's the question: How do people react when you tell them that you're a social worker? You know, you're not going to make a lot of money, right? Like, you're going to be poor. That's the thing I get all the time. And I'm like, first of all, if you're classist nonsense, you need to get lost. But second of all, um, I'm fully aware of that. I did research before I picked my major. I know I'm not going to be a baller. I didn't really want to be a baller anyway. So... (laughs) Yeah. Yes. Please. Yes. Well, <laughs> classism really. will also be an ongoing topic. Yeah. Cause that's what that is. You know, you're going to be paying a whole lot of loans back. You know, you're not going to be able to. Do- yes. We did. We did not get into these fields because they were going to be highly lucrative. We got into these fields, obviously, because we are very passionate people. 
And it's like the same thing as when someone tells you you look tired. You're like, oh, thank you. No, I'm not living that experience every day. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's incredible. All right. How do you approach self-care? I wait until I start crying and I can't take any more of life and I contemplate (laughs) my existence. (laughs) No, um, I usually burn out and that's when I recognize that like I need to do something for myself and I'm working really hard on doing that before I get to that point, but it's definitely a work in progress. Um, But usually I sometimes I just try to keep it simple like maybe it's just talking to a friend for a while on the phone so I don't feel alone or or and I can talk about how I feel overwhelmed and maybe it's that like I want to eat pasta salad for some odd reason so I'm going to go to the grocery store and buy all the ingredients to make myself pasta salad or like I'm going to go for a bike ride because I'm a child masquerading as an adult so speaking of pasta salad maybe what's a guilty pleasure of yours so like a guilty pleasure is something that you really like to do but you think that others would judge you negatively for so you don't tell anybody about so like watching the kardashians (laughs) or something else that you'd feel embarrassed by so i have two uh the first one would be not so much of a secret but so i have a lot of dietary restrictions and i like shouldn't really eat fast food ever But every now and then I'm cruising for a bruising and I will go in on Taco Bell and it's worth every ounce of like not real food that it is. Um, And then the second thing is uh, I watch ASMR videos. So if you're not familiar with what ASMR stands for, it's a autonomous sensory sensory meridian response. So it's like essentially people just making like comforting ass noises and it lulls me to sleep like a sweet little baby. So that's why I watch it on YouTube. That's incredible. And Sarah, should we, should we also uh, share guilty pleasures of ours? Yes, feel free to go first while I think of one. I mean, my guilty pleasure is watching Survivor. I am currently watching a season I've already seen at least twice before. So Nice. I Thank you for making that easy. I will piggyback off of that. I rewatch shows. I have about seven shows in rotation. That I have watched, and this this is like the guilty, embarrassing part because I have watched some of them like upwards towards ten times. Obviously, some have been removed off of Netflix recently, but yeah, like I'm on my fifth rewatch of Community. The new season of Lucifer is coming out soon, so Lord knows I'm going to rewatch the whole series before that happens. Oh my gosh, I didn't know that. I'm really excited. Oh God, it's coming. It's coming. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and I feel embarrassed saying that, so it must have been a guilty pleasure. <laughs> All right, Raquel, what is your least favorite phrase? Uh, We have here least favorite therapy phrase. What is your least favorite cliche social work phrase? Uh, There's there's like quite a few. It's more like, I don't know, when I think of like cliches, I think about like, uh, like more of the like recovery ones versus like social work. Use it. One day at a time pisses me off so much. All I think of is like, I don't know if you ever watched the movie, like 28 Days, like Sandra Bullock, like gets into a car crash and she has to go to rehab or whatever. And she's like, they say that to her. And she's like, can I get that stitched on a pillow? And like, that's what I think of. I'm like, yeah, because three, four, five days at a time is a fucking option. Like, get out of my face. <laughs> I feel like people also use that because they don't 
like they use it towards people when they don't know what advice to give. So instead of just saying, I don't know what to say, I'll just be here for you. They just say, oh, well, you know, <laughs> one day at a time, like everything happens for a reason or other similar trash quotes. Yeah, that one. What's your favorite social work outfit to wear? Oh my God. So I'm like living the dream, you know, being on Zoom because I only got to look nice from here up. So my, uh, my staple outfit of life is black leggings, a black t-shirt with a black hoodie and shocker, some black Nikes to go with it. Um, <laughs> so it's usually like, I'll put on a nice top. It's usually black, maybe it has some flowers or some shit on it. <laughs> and, um, I'll like make sure my hair doesn't look crazy and I'll just wear like pajamas or leggings underneath. So I'm gonna have a real problem when I have to wear real pants to work again. Yeah, who knows when that is. <laughs> <laughs> I found oh, some very stretchy, like look like dress pants, but they are yoga pants. Like they have like pockets in them. They're one of my favorite pants. Ooh, that is yeah. yeah clothes are becoming more <laughs> female form friendly which is nice oh well I will say they're from definitely this website that is for people much older than me um because like I think one of their main sellers is loafers um and I found them because at one of my jobs I had to wear a uniform which was khaki pants which is really hard to find if you're not like a child at all times of the year because like so um, it, it's G.H. Bass & Co. I don't know if they sell clothes anymore. Uh, <laughs> if they're just straight lo- loafers. But here's a free <laughs> ad spot for that company. <laughs> Amazing. That's a very good point. I never thought about that. Why are khakis so hard to find? And why are they after like the sewing pattern of a box? Because... And the craziest thing is that I went into Walmart looking for khaki pants and they did not have any. And their uniform was my uniform. Like it was like a blue polo or a blue shirt and khaki pants. And the people, people thought I worked there. And then also the people working there were like, no, we don't know where you can get khaki pants from. And like, they also needed khaki pants. So it's not shocking that Walmart employees would not be provided with pants at the place where they work. <laughs> like most, like most things they're not provided with like bathroom breaks. That's so funny. Um, it's not funny, but um, I used to work at Target when I was like 16 to like 18. It was so sucking and great. Um, there was the same thing. I needed khaki pants. Cause one day I was like changing the signage. And I'm only like five feet tall. So I like have to jump on counters and stuff. And I ripped my pants uh, all down the back. So you could see my underwear. And I had like six hours left of work. So (laughs) I was like, what the fuck do I do? And I was like, do we sell khaki pants? And they're like, no. I was like, can I go home? And they're like, no you're just gonna have to figure something out that's on brand what did you what did you do I called my mom and she ended up being able to find me like another pair of khaki pants that I we had somewhere in the house um and I just did like a quick trade-off because my mom was uh inebriated so I was like just get out of here all right Raquel what is a resource that you feel everyone should know about whether it's a website a book or you know a service 
Oh, that's a lot of resources. Um, I have like a whole list of them actually. Um, I think everyone in regards to like the ID population should be familiar with DBHIDS, um, the Department of Behavioral Health and Intellectual Disability Services in Philadelphia. Um, I think also like community behavioral health, I have this nice little post-it, um, they're really important. They are the behavioral health sector of, if you have Medicaid in Philadelphia, that's your that's who you have to go through to get mental health services. And also being aware that there are mental health delegates and uh, the mobile crisis units. So you don't ever have to call the cops if someone is having a mental uh, crisis. You call the mobile services unit and they will assess you and transfer you to the appropriate treatment that is necessary, whether it's a crisis center or inpatient, and uh, no cops are involved in that whole process, and it's delightful. Very, very important to mention. Um, 911 should be your very, very last resort if somebody is in a mental health crisis. Uh, very last resort. Um, and Raquel, so we'll take those resources and put them in our show notes. We'll yeah, say. we'll also, we also have a have a section on our website that is just resources and we will put it together by um region too so um so that people know what numbers to call if you could have any superpower what would it be and why oh uh teleportation because i think that that would be so lit if i like because because like okay so quick back like story uh, because of the BIPOC community, like I've met like people globally, like people in Australia, like South Africa, UK, France, like all over the US. And I wish I want to meet these people in real life. So I think it would be so sick. It's like, I'll just go to Australia real quick and like go visit Auntie Brenda. And then like, I want to go to Cali, go see my friends over there in Oakland. Like, I freaked out because that is the answer to that question. <laughs> that is my answer. I've I've asked it in so many adolescent groups as like a, a startup question. And I'm always like, no, it's teleportation because you could just like, first of all, don't have to deal with traffic ever. You just, boop, then you're home. And then you could just like go to Hawaii for afternoon and come back. It's so good. It's the best. I'm realizing there's definitely holes in my my superpower because mine would obviously be to fly, but why would I fly? So I could be <laughs> above tall buildings and be in other countries when I could definitely do that with teleportation and I wouldn't have windblown hair. So, all right, y'all have converted me. I used to be in your, I used to say flying. And then I think like a child got, convinced got me it was lighten. teleportation. Mm-hmm. No, we can't ever ask that question again, I guess. Damn. (laughs) Yeah, we definitely, we will will judge those who answer incorrectly. Awesome. Yeah. So our last question is a would you rather question or like an either or question. Uh, It's from this deck of cards that says, which would you choose? Um, (laughs) That I bought from Kohl's like, like seven years ago. And would you rather have pizza and cake or tacos and pie? If it's pumpkin pie we're talking about. It's any pie. Tacos. Any tacos, pie. any pizza, any tacos and pie. Yeah. Yeah, I'm gonna have to go with that one. 
I have like um, a special spot in my heart for tacos for like real tacos not just Taco Bell mm. and uh, a pumpkin pie is like I never experienced it growing up because I'm Puerto Rican it's not really like a thing but we eat you know, on Thanksgiving usually you'll see like coconut pie coconut cream pie or something like that which is delicious also um so until I started like getting shipped off to like my friends family's houses I never experienced pumpkin pie and I was like it looks kind of gross and then I had it and I was like this is so lit <laughs> and it's like the thing I look forward to if I go to anyone else's house for Thanksgiving <laughs> which is an awful holiday we need to make pumpkin pie like a year-round thing I agree. I agree. Also, full disclosure, I have a dog named Pumpkin Pie, so I'm a little bit biased about pumpkin pie anyway. Um, oh, the name the shelter gave her, and it was just too perfect. So, what do you think, Sarah? Pizza and cake or tacos and pie? Tacos and pie, definitely. Um, I have pizza enough, and I feel like we there's not enough good tacos. There's not enough good tacos now that I'm living in a suburban area. There are not, there's not access to great tacos and that's something that I really miss. It's not like there's access to great pizza, but who cares about great pizza? Um, I'm sure many people do, but I don't. And also pie, give me all the pie and I'll put all the whipped cream on it. Even if it's like pecan, I'll just drown it in some type of sweetener and it'll be great. I think that there are so many types of pie that it makes it, and I'm not a big cake fan, uh, I'm a big pizza fan, but I think I would also have to go tacos and pie. That's a good question. Yes. Very yeah. good question. Real thinkers. All right, Raquel, thank you so much for answering all of our questions. We will be right back after the break. Welcome back. This is the Sarah story portion of our episode where we share a funny, embarrassing, ridiculous story about a person who is in therapy or a therapy adjacent story. We don't have any Sarah stories right now because we have not asked for them. So if you would like to share your Sarah story, uh, please email us at therapistnextdoor at gmail.com. And because we don't have any, I'm going to share one of my own therapist stories. And that one is that my first therapist sounded exactly like Adam Sandler. Um, so if whoever is casting for the movie of my life, you know who to cast as my first therapist. I, you, you would think like, okay, maybe Joanna's just being like hyperbolic or something like that. But no, I like, you know, close my eyes sometimes or like look down and I could imagine Adam Sandler sitting there giving me therapy that's incredible yeah like like thinking about an an adam sandler type timbre and voice giving helpful suggestions and being kind and uh, i don't know not making just like shrieking noises is very hard to imagine <laughs> um in my therapy story it occurred the first time i met with my first psychiatrist when i was 17 years old you know i was below the age of 18 so my mom was in the office with me for the first couple of questions and then um he asked her to step out and he looked at me and he said, are you ready to answer your questions honestly now? <laughs> and I was thrown off by that a little bit, but then surprisingly I did. 
answer the questions a little more honestly. And then he asked my mom to come back in the room. And then this professional psychiatrist said uh, with a straight face to my mother, surprise, surprise, your daughter is depressed. And that was my first experience with therapy. And it was very on brand because because it was not a surprise and I was. All right. Thank you so much for listening to our show. A special thanks to Raquel Mangual, Bachelor in Social Work, recent graduate at Temple University. Be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. You can check us out on Instagram at Therapists Next Door or on Twitter, Therapists ND Pod, all one word, or visit our website, tndpodcast.com. If you would like ad-free episodes, the ability to vote on what questions we ask our guests, and so, so, so much more, head on over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash tndpodcast. If you want to submit your therapy story, which again is a funny or ridiculous story that you as a client had in therapy or a therapy-adjacent story for us to read on the show, email it to therapistsnextdoor at gmail.com, and that's the plural of therapistsnextdoor at gmail.com. Until next time, we are your therapist. We are your therapist next door. Next door. <laughs> <laughs>